broken people? Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Good morning, everyone. So glad to see you today. Uh, this uh, fall, we're in the book of Nehemiah, which is an Old Testament book. It's a story. And uh, we're going to follow through it and unpack its lessons for our lives. It's going to be an incredible journey. There's going to be a lot that we learn through this together. <clears throat> today is uh, one of those days where everyone in this room who's of age probably remembers exactly where they were, almost at this exact same time, what you were doing 21 years ago. Uh, I remember I was getting ready for the day when Lara called me and she said, John, turn on the news. Something very strange is happening. And Lara had a little portable TV that she would listen to at her desk at work. And all of her coworkers were gathered around this little tiny screen uh, watching in disbelief as the North Tower and then the South Tower and then eventually the Pentagon was struck. And I wonder, do you remember how numb you felt that morning, that day? Do you remember how sickened in your stomach, the catastrophic loss of life, thinking about the frantic cries, the, the untold suffering and loss that was unfolding before our very eyes? You remember how you felt when you saw the flames and the smoke and the mushroom cloud of dust after the towers collapsed? Do you remember how you felt when you saw the burned out ruins uh, through the, the, the cloud of smoke? Uh, two of our nation's greatest symbols that day, you had the World Trade Towers, the World Trade Center that symbolized our economic invincibility. And you had the Pentagon, which symbolized our military invincibility. Do you remember how it felt to see those symbols lay in ruin? Do you remember that sense of dread as you contemplated and tried to ascertain, you know, just how much trouble are we in? How much worse is this going to get and bigger is this going to get? Do you remember the sense of disgrace you felt later on, the, the kind of humiliation, knowing that the enemy got the best of us? And did it using $5 box cutters of all things. Do you remember maybe the rage that you felt when you had a thirst for vengeance and thought, what are we going to do to the people that did this to us? Do you remember how you prayed at that time? Do you remember what you prayed? Why, Lord? How long, Lord? How much more? Maybe, Lord, have mercy. There's a lot of reflection that's been done. And uh, some of the questions that people wrestle with, the big questions were, like, who, were, who was he was a question that was in, uh, in the newspaper this week. Who was he? They had a picture of a person uh, falling and that had preferred to jump to their death as opposed to be burned alive. And, and everybody's like, who is this guy? What's his story? And so a lot of, like, who were these individuals? What were their stories? What were they doing that day? You know, what, what happened to them? 
But then another question is, is who were they? Like, who were the ones that caused all this destruction? What was their worldview? And, and who are our enemies? But another question that is asked is, who are we? Like, what have we learned? And, and where are we now as a people and as a nation compared to where we were then? But another big question is, who is God? And where is God? And what was God doing? What is God doing? These kinds of questions. That night we held a prayer service at Lakeside on the night of September 11th. And the first Sunday after that, churches had record attendance. But then a few weeks later, everything kind of went back to normal. But we have had an experience and we have a frame of reference for some of what we see in the story of Nehemiah. Look at these words again through the lens of what we just talked about. Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned him about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. Think about if it read, I talked to people from New York City. I talked to people from Washington, D.C. that survived. And I asked them, how are things there now? And they said to me, the remnant that's in the province that survived the exile, they're actually in great trouble and they're in great disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. If you think our pride as Americans was bruised on 9-11, what about the pride of the Jewish people in the days of the Babylonian captivity, in the reigns of all these different nations and kings that rose up against Israel. The Jewish people, they would have had a sense of invincibility. You can imagine a Jewish person thinking, our God is the God of Israel. Our God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of Moses who delivered us out of Egypt who delivered our enemies to us, who brought us into the great land flowing with milk and honey and, and so many good things in abundance. And, and Jerusalem is the great city of God. No one can touch Jerusalem. It's the, the city of the, the temple of the God of the heavens and earth. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Uh, our God will uphold our cause. He will fight for us. You can imagine the kind of invincibility that a Jewish person would have felt. And maybe you can appreciate the shock that they felt, not just when their city was destroyed, not just the temple, not just the walls, but additionally, even beyond maybe what we experience, watching your leaders, the royal court being killed, hauled off to a distant land, conscripted, uh, slaughtered maybe before your eyes. Imagine those additional things. Imagine the symbols of your great nation, the temple of the living God, the walls of your great city that were so strong and protective for you, burning, collapsing into ruin, smoldering in smoke. It was like a 9-11. It was like a Pearl Harbor. But maybe something that's different was the leadership, spiritual, uh, of this nation was also destroyed in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was never really quite rebuilt. It lay in ruins, though efforts had been made. And so that's the circumstance that we find ourselves in. Uh, imagine the different assumptions that you'd have about God if you were a Jewish person. Maybe there's some of the same assumptions 
that you had as an American experiencing 9-11 or something else. Nehemiah 1.4. Nehemiah says, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Uh, we unpacked those verses last week. And we talked a little bit about how calamity, it can happen on a national level, it can happen on an international level. But calamity can also happen on a very personal level. And regardless of what level it happens on, we have in this story kind of a, a template, if you will, uh, maybe a, a pathway through the calamity to finding God in the midst of calamity. This is an incredible story. But think about in your life, Maybe you've experienced personal calamity. I still remember the day, and it's been years, when I got a phone call that my dad had passed away and hearing my mom weeping in the background, and she couldn't even talk on the phone. Somebody else had to tell me what was going on. I remember the day a dear friend died in a collision. I, I can replay dozens of conversations through my years of ministry when a dear brother in Christ or a sister in Christ shared some bad news about a personal loss, about a medical diagnosis, maybe a terminal condition, and they said, I'm not going to be here next year, or this is my last Christmas, or someone told me, he says, I won't be buying green bananas anymore. That's how he, the one person uh, shared their uh, news with me. People have shared news about a family crisis or an accident or an infidelity that rocked their marriage and family, or a divorce. Life inevitably brings us to our knees for one reason or another. And when that happens, these questions swirl. Who is this God that we cry out to? Where is he? What in the world is God doing? Where was he that day? What is his purpose and plan? Is God even aware? Is he even listening? Does he even see me? Is he even real or is God a figment of my imagination? Think of all the false assumptions that start to emerge that we make, that people make about God in the midst of pain and disaster and trouble and disgrace. Some people draw the conclusion there must not be any God. There's no creator. Others might say if there is a God, he's not great. He's certainly not powerful. Or even if he is great and powerful, and even if he is there, he's not good, he didn't respond. Or some people say he's not loving, he's not attentive, he doesn't see or hear the affliction of his people. And if he does, he's not merciful. Maybe he's holding punishment over us. Uh, or, or maybe he's not true to his promise. God can't be trusted to follow through. All these things swirl in the background when there's pain and distress. And you can imagine how those things have swirled in the backdrop of things we've experienced nationally, personally, how they swirled in the background of the people, the Jewish exiles that survive the remnant. I want to uh, say this carefully, and I want you to really internalize this and think about this. Maybe a lack of prayer isn't our biggest problem. You know, what babe doesn't cry out when he or she's in pain? 
we have an instinctual way of crying out, praying to God. To, you know, we, we call out. Uh, pain brings the most stubborn atheists to their knees. You know, one moment a person says, I don't believe in God, but then something happens and there they are, they're praying. Maybe a bigger problem than a lack of prayer is a lack of knowledge. I want you to think on that. Write that down. Maybe a bigger problem than a lack of prayer is a lack of knowledge. And what I mean is, is, is as we pray, as we cry out, just who is this God that we're crying out to in the dark? Where is he? What in the world is he doing? What is his purpose and plan? Is he aware? Is he listening? Is he even real? How do you know? What do you know? As much as you might grieve or I might grieve for somebody that's going through pain, I doubly grieve when people, though, yes, they pray, they have a lack of knowledge of God. I've found that when a problem presents itself, that's never the right time to, you can't lay a foundation when it's most needed in the midst of a crisis. If that knowledge is there, it'll fortify a person in the midst of their pain, but if that knowledge isn't there, you can't fortify a person with knowledge in the midst of their pain. Maybe after things have subsided, maybe before, but during, that's not the best time always to get knowledge. Nehemiah was fortified with knowledge so that when this moment presents itself, he prays with knowledge. He prays full of knowledge. And we have in this story, almost it's not a manuscript, it's at least an outline of how he was praying. How was he praying through his trouble and distress? What was he saying to God? What did he assume about this prayer that's at the beginning of Nehemiah is a treasure for us? I want you to think about maybe our prayers are ineffective not because they lack sincerity. Like, think of how sincere you are when you pray in pain. You are as sincere as you can get. If I were to tell you to be more sincere, you wouldn't know how because you're like, I can't be more sincere. How do you be more, you know, how do you, how do you be more sincere than what you already are? Our prayers maybe are ineffective not because they lack intensity. Like, how can you even pray? Like, you're already in desperation and anguish and, and distress. And like, how can you be more intense? And how could the situation be, you know, what if our prayers are ineffective because they're void of true knowledge of the God who is there? And this morning, I want you to think about how true knowledge of God might not just inform your prayer, but actually unleash their power. And so as Nehemiah prays, we're just going to go through it verse by verse. It's not going to take long. It's simple. But there are like six pillars to this prayer that I identify. Maybe there's more. But this is just to get you thinking. In your small group, you can come up with more or you can say, well, you know, these are the ones that matter most or whatever. But there are some solid pillars and foundations to prayer that, that come out in these verses. And the first one is that Nehemiah knew God as creator. That's pillar number one. He knew God as creator. So in Nehemiah 1.5, he addresses the Lord, the God of heavens. Now, what you should know is that that's also the way that the Persians would address God. There's kind of a generic reference to God here, although the word Lord there implies that God has got authority over the heavens and probably over our lives as well, but there's some stuff that's loaded up there. But the God of heavens is a generic reference to God. And I was thinking about, in our Bibles, we have Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And I think... Genesis 1 and 2 is the common ground that we can meet anybody upon because 
one of the greatest presuppositions that, that the overwhelming majority have, have made of, throughout history is that there is a God, that there is some God of heaven, there's a creator. There, there's something more there than just us. There's a God who's, who's present. There's a Lord God of heaven. The Persians made that assumption. Now, who is that God? And what do we know about him? We'll get to that in a moment. But think about Genesis 1 and 2. A few years ago, I started making a list of all the things in Genesis 1 and 2 that are kind of unexplainable today. They're supernatural things. They're, they're scientifically inexplicable. And so scientists reach to the utter uh, level, the upper level of their imagination to try to imagine like, how these little miracles and how these different things came up about. But in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a whole boatload of like cascading miracles that happen just for us to have a life and to, and to be here and to even be in this moment. For example, in the beginning, nothing became something. I mean, the invisible spawned visible things. The material things like Right? Emerged from immaterial things. Things with mass and structure emerged from things that didn't have mass and structure. Existence emerged from non-existence. I was listening to these two uh, scientist people this week on a podcast, and they're talking about the ground of being. Like, you're a human being. What's the ground of your existence, of your being? Uh, this tree over here is wood, and, and it's wood is its basis of being and existing, and and here's an animal, and here's all these things, and what's the ground of being? How did all these things come to have their identity and form and their essence? And they talked and talked, and I was like, you guys aren't getting anywhere on this one. Energy, how did it come from non-energy? How did things get set into motion that were presumably dormant? How did things without any function, utility, or purpose suddenly have functionality and purpose seemingly in their function in the universe? Uh, how did things move from non-sustaining to self-sustaining, from non-perpetuating to self-perpetuating? Things are in a cycle. There, there's a movement. There's predictability. There's, uh, you know, in the beginning, light came from non-light, presumably. The cosmos came from non-cosmos. They don't know. The earth, moon, and stars Here's the earth, here's the moon hung in the perfect tensions with the star. But then you got this whole galaxy that emerged from what? But life emerged from non-life. Don't skip over that one too quick. Biological cells with life emerged from non-biological inert matter. Uh, animals emerged from non-animal uh, six amazing sensory capacities that we have emerge from nonsense, non-sensory experience. Gender is a complex, right? Sexuality came from non-gender, non-sexual existence. L living things developed a capacity not just to exist but to reproduce according to their own kind like perfectly in the exact same form and, and, and to multiply, Non-consciousness gave rise to complete consciousness. We have self-consciousness. We've got consciousness of each other. We've even got a God consciousness. Uh, pain. 
emerge from non-pain. The fact that we can feel pain. The, the, the personal emerge from the impersonal. We, we love, we care, there's empathy, there's interaction, there's interdependency. It came from what? Human from non-human, time from non-time, language from where there was no language, a conscience from where there was no conscience. There's moral concern. You know, we have memory. We can look back on history. We can understand it and, and assign meaning to it. The, the moral emerged from the non-moral or immoral. People and things that were you know, bound by the laws of the universe, everything probably had a... But suddenly things broke out of their script and began acting freely and with self-agency. And, and here we are as human beings, right, with free agency. The deeper that they peer into space or the further they break down and study the fundamentals of reality, like the more improbable and inexplainable all those kinds of things become. It is overwhelming. So you take the wildest miracles of Scripture. Which parts of Scripture are you kind of like embarrassed to admit that you believe in? Or maybe you like, what's the wildest miracle that you see in Scripture? Is it a cosmic flood? Is it the parting of the Red Sea? Is it manna, bread coming from heaven? Is it that Jonah got swallowed by a whale? You know, I keep seeing stories of people getting swallowed by whales. Not for three days and all that, but it happens. That one's in the realm of, like, plausibility at some level anyway. What about a blind person, their eye seen? A lame person physically restored some part of their body? A deaf person being able to hear? How about a dead corpse, a dead man rising from a grave? You know, it's already got its form and structure and, and all the, the pieces are there. It's just breathing life into it and, and restoring its life from death to life. No miracle of Scripture is improbable if you have the proper doctrine of God as creator. Because nothing else even rivals even the kinds of things that you read in Genesis 1 and 2. Like, uh, what's improbable for the God who brings forth water from non-water? Well, he can part it any way he wants. That seems kind of anticlimactic to me, don't you think? Uh, bread from heaven. Well, that's pretty incredible, but that's kind of anticlimactic to the fact that flour is even a thing that comes from plants, right? If God can form living man out of the dust of the earth, then he can certainly bring, breathe life back into any one of us, or he can take the dust and recreate us if he wanted. It's all anticlimactic. And so all scientific speculation just continually gets upended. Every time we think we're really sure that we have an explanation other than Genesis 1 and 2 for something, it kind of collapses and falls apart, and that's what's happening right now. It's a very exciting time to kind of look at the sciences and, and realize the limits of it. But I mention all this because I think the most fundamental thing to prayer is that there is a God, and there's a creator God. And that's where Nehemiah starts his prayer, is acknowledging that fundamental reality. Otherwise, who are you praying to? Who are you calling out to? You know, uh, so that's pillar number one. The rest will go a little faster. Another pillar is knowing the greatness of, of God. So Nehemiah continues, the Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God. If you have a conviction about the greatness of God, you would say it in that way. You would say, he is a great 
and he is an awe-inspiring God. How do you get to this idea of the greatness of God? Well, one very obvious thing is creation. Psalm 19, you read the first six verses of Psalm 19. Creation itself declares the greatness of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation is one of the biggest things that stares you right in the face every moment of every day. I mean, just you looking in the mirror in the morning. I mean, God created you. That is the biggest thing that declares the glory of God. His divine power is evident everywhere is what the Apostle Paul says, being uh, evident by what he's created so that we're without excuse. But the Holy Scriptures also declare the awe-inspiring greatness of God in terms of history. So later on in the story of Nehemiah, if you want to flip ahead to Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to get there in time. But Nehemiah gives a master class summation of God's awe-inspiring works in history from the very beginning right up to the present moment that he's in. And, uh, and that's also what Psalm 19 does. It talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God, but then the law that God gave to his people also declaring the glory of God. So how do we get about the greatness of God? We look at history. What is God's reputation? In history, what is God, what, what has he been capable of? What has he done? What might he do again in our lives, in our world, in this present moment? The answers are found right in history. And you don't come about the greatness of God, yes, through creation, but more specifically, you have to come about it through the scriptures themselves. Creation works, the historical works of God, greatness, contemplating the greatness of God in those ways is a pillar of prayer. Now, a third pillar is Nehemiah mentions the goodness of God in verse 5. The Lord God of heaven's great and awe-inspiring God. What's so great and awe-inspiring? He keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is a pattern of God that is as trustworthy and immutable as any law of the universe. That God keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. So immediately, I think our curiosity gets aroused. Covenant? What covenant? And love? How has God shown that love? Grace? Well, what grace is available? What grace has God shown his people throughout time? Commands? What commands? We all have expectations of God, but what are those based on? You know, we might be praying to the God of our imagination if we don't open our scriptures and see what the history and reality of that God has been throughout time. What's our, you know, does God have expectations of us? Is this a one-way relationship where God just serves me or am I to serve him? Uh... We all want a relationship with God. What's the basis of that relationship? Do we? Does God? Uh, does loving God mean what I want it to mean? Does it mean what God wants it to mean? And here you have Nehemiah wrestling with what has been the nature of our relationship with God? Has he been unloving? Has he failed? Has his goodness been withheld? Or have we been unloving? Have we turned away from what God wanted to give us. So he's beginning to wrestle with these things in prayer. Third, Nehemiah knew the heart of God. Verse 6, when he prays, he says, let your ears be open, let your eyes be open, let your ears be attentive to hear the words your servants are praying 
night and day, uh, that we're praying for your servants, for the Israelites. Nehemiah realizes that God's heart is inclined toward his servants, inclined towards his people. When Jesus came, one of the most scandalous aspects of his teaching was when he painted the God of the universe, the God of heaven, as a father. That God is like a father who, despite all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing, whatever we've done, no matter how estranged, how destitute we've become, alienated in a distant country even, that Jesus said God is like a father who scans the horizon, watching for the first signs of his children returning. His eyes are continually open, his ears attentive to his servants who might call out to him day and night. God is really there. He's watching and listening. He sees us and hears us. He's the creator. He's great. He's good. His heart is inclined toward us. God's inviting us and welcoming us and and desires relationship. These are pillars of prayer. Another pillar, a fifth pillar is Nehemiah trusted and knew the mercy of God. In verse 6, he says, I confess the sins that we have committed against you, God. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept your commands, your statutes, and ordinances that you gave your servant, Moses. Uh, When I read these verses, I think sometimes, you know, we imagine that God wants to hold us captive for our sins to really make us pay for how we've fallen short of his glory. We imagine that God wants to have his boot on our neck and continually condemn us and punish us. And the reality is, and these verses reflect it, is God wants to release us from our sin by his own mercy and grace. Nehemiah understood that the Lord our God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He wants to release us not hold something over us. John three sixteen through 17. God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. How deep of a foundation, understanding, and knowledge of God's mercy do you have when you pray? 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, that word if isn't insignificant, isn't it? Is it because of lack of what God's doing or is it a lack of our responsiveness? If we would confess, we could have this confidence that not only will you be forgiven, but God will cleanse your life your family history, your national history. He'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Now, a final pillar, and uh, this is really powerful. Nehemiah knew the faithfulness of God. Verse 8, he prays, please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. Now, he's going back into the chronicles of history here, and he's like saying, you did this for Moses. You said this to Moses. You've bound yourself, God, by your own word in this way. Here's that word again, if. 
If you're unfaithful, God told Moses, I will scatter you among the nations. I will scatter you. You know, our brokenness isn't because of something God's done. It's something because of what we've done. When we rebel against it, we were scattered from the Garden of Eden. Our relationships fragmented. Uh, our relationships in the world, our relationship to creation, pain, the curse, all that. That wasn't because of God's design. That was because of our designs. And God told Moses, you know, if you're unfaithful, even if you find yourself in a far distant country like the prodigal son, uh, uh, if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place that I choose to have my name dwell. And Nehemiah says, well, God, they're your servants. They're your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand in the past. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At that time, I was cupbearer to the king. We're going to get into the story next week and talk about what's going on here. It's going to be incredible. But, but Nehemiah was able to say, God, you said. He didn't pray out of ignorance. He prayed out of knowledge. God, you promised. God, you've been faithful. There's nothing lacking in you. And so we come to, you know, this is like a gutsy prayer. He prays, God, like the whole world's watching, you promised. You staked your glory, your name, your reputation on our well-being as a people. God, you promised if we'd repent and return to you that you'd gather us, you'd redeem us, you'd restore us, you'd rebuild our broken city and walls and lives and marriage and, and temple and families and nation. And, and all of that happens in Nehemiah. God rebuilds everything, not just their city and the temple. He rebuilds everything. God, what a delight it is to know you, to revere your name, to pray to you. I suppose that some prayer is better than no prayer. I might venture to say that praying in ignorance is better than no praying, I think. If you pray in ignorance, you might just be praying to a figment of your imagination, a God, like a God of your own fabrication. And if you don't know the word, I mean, who, what, who's this God you're praying to? You're just guessing, you just... But I want you to wrestle with how exponentially more powerful it is to pray in knowledge to pray in the light of the glory of the God that we know to be true creator, a great and mighty God, a good God, a God enthusiastic, eager to show mercy, a God who is holy and faithful to his people and to his covenant, a God who is vested in his own glory and who is eager to act and honor his covenant of love with those who love him. What's it like to pray in knowledge? I would encourage you, you know, here's six pillars. As you get together this week, our small groups are starting. What are some other things that are anchor points to our prayers? What is it that gives us confidence in prayer most before God? Nehemiah's prayer might be a starting point. 
but there's many, many other prayers in Scripture, and there's many other anchor points as well. What is it that gives us confidence to come before God in our trouble and disgrace? What knowledge will draw us there? Dear Father, we pray to you in knowledge, and we know you to be our creator. We know you to be powerful. We know you to be good. We know your mercy and your grace and your love for us. We know you listen to our prayers. We know you hear us. Father, we pray that you would draw us to yourself through this series, that we would be empowered and encouraged by what you did during the days of Nehemiah, and that we would invite you to again move in our lives and circumstances today. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.